The Book of Canons, among other things objected to, asserted the king's supremacy in all causes, ecclesiastical as well as civil, and joined various unwarranted and superstitious rites in the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, proscribed sessions and presbyteries, and invested the bishops with uncontrollable power. The service book was just the English liturgy with numerous alterations by which it approached nearer the Roman Missal. End footnote. Possessed of a strong and masculine spirit, the Marchioness of Hamilton displayed an undaunted heroism in the cause which neither the sight of personal danger nor the partiality of maternal affection could subdue. When her son James, Marquis, afterward Duke of Hamilton, who sided with Charles I against the Covenanters, conducted an English fleet to the fourth in 1639 to overawe them, she appeared on horseback with two pistols by her side at the head of a troop of horse among the intrepid thousands who lined the shores of Leith on that occasion to resist his landing and drawing one of her pistols from her saddle-bow declared that she would be the first to shoot him should he presume to land and attack the troops of the Covenant. Footnote Douglas's Peerage Volume 1 Page 704 End footnote it is said that she had even loaded her pistols with balls of gold, but this rests on very doubtful authority. Footnote. The story about the balls of gold rests on the authority of Gordon of Strachloch's manuscripts, none of the purest, to be sure. But the manly heroism of the old marchioness is noticed by Spang, Historical Motuum, page 357, McCree's Sketches of Scottish Church History, 2nd edition, page 255. End footnote. It is certain, however, that when the Marquis cast anchor in the fourth near Leith, loitering for the king whose army was marching into Scotland to his assistance, she paid him a visit on board his vessel. The particulars of this interview have not been recorded, but the people anticipated from it the most favorable results. The son of such a mother, they said, will do us no harm. Footnote. Whitelock's Memorials, page 29. Whitelock terms her a rigid covenanter. End footnote. Nor did they suffer any harm. The spirited conduct and intercession of his mother, it is supposed, was one cause which prevented the Marquis' debar debarkation of his troops. Other causes, however, seem to have contributed to this. The number of his troops, which amounted only to about three or four thousand, was too small for the occasion. Besides, hearing that a part of the English army, being encountered by the Scots at Kelso, were defeated, with a loss of three hundred men, and put to flight, he was not in a disposition to engage with the Covenanters, who gave such decided proofs of earnestness and soon after a pacification was concluded between them and the king at the Burks of Berwick. Respecting this lady, we meet with no additional facts except that her last will is dated the 4th of November, 1644, and that she died in 1647. Footnote. Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 207. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 704. End footnote. It may be added that there is a portrait of the Marchioness in Pinkerton's Scottish Gallery of Portraits, Volume 2. The portrait, says Pinkerton, corresponds with the masculine character of the Marchioness. He adds, 
Johnson, the ingenious limner, died before he had finished the drapery of this drawing, which is from a painting by Jameson at Tamath. Lady Boyd Lady Boyd, whose maiden name was Christian Hamilton, was the only child of Sir Thomas Hamilton of Priestfield, afterward first Earl of Haddington by his first wife, Margaret, daughter of James Borthwick of Newbyers. Her father, who studied law in France, was, on his returning to Scotland, admitted advocate on the 1st of November, 1587, and soon, distinguishing himself at the bar by his talents and learning, he was, on the 2nd of November, 1592, appointed a Lord of Session by the title of Lord Drumcairn. In February 1596, he became King's Advocate, and in May 1612, Lord Clerk Register of Scotland. He was next invested with the offices of Secretary of State and President of the Court of Session, which he retained till the 5th of February 1626, when he was constituted Keeper of the Privy Seal and on the 27th of August, 1627, he was created Earl of Haddington. He died on the 29th of May, 1637, in the 74th year of his age. By means of the lucrative offices he held, he acquired one of the largest fortunes of his time. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, pages 678 and 679. End footnote. The subject of this notice was first married to Robert, ninth Lord Lindsay of Byers, who died at Bath on 9th of July, 1616. To him she had a son, John, tenth Lord Lindsay of Byers, afterward Earl of Crawford Lindsay, and a daughter, Helen, married to Sir William Scott of Ardross. Footnote, Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, pages 386 and 679. End footnote. She did not long remain a widow, having married, for her second husband, in the year 1617, Robert, 6th Lord Boyd. Footnote. The marriage contract between her and that nobleman bears the date of that year. Chalmers' Manuscript Account of the Noble Families of Scotland in Advocate's Library, Volume 1, page 22. Lord Boyd was a widower, having been previously married to Lady Margaret Montgomery, daughter of Robert Montgomery of Giffen, and relict of Hugh, 5th Earl of Eglinton. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, page 35. The marriage contract between him and this lady is dated October 1614, and in reference to this marriage, writing, June 22, 1614, from London to his cousin, Robert Boyd of Trochrig, then on the continent, he says, Sir George and Sir Thomas have told me their commission, which is marriage with the Earl of Eglinton, his wife, widow, and has shown me many good reasons. Wadrow's Life of Robert Boyd of Trochrig, printed by the Maitland Club, page 114. End footnote. Robert, sixth Lord, sixth Lord Boyd was an excellent man who studied at Samor under his cousin, the famous Robert Boyd of Trochrig, from whom he seems to have derived, in addition to secular learning, much religious advantage. Like the Marchioness of Hamilton, Lady Boyd joined the ranks of the Presbyterians who resisted the attempts of James VI and Charles I 
to impose prelacy upon the Church of Scotland, with many of the most eminent ministers of those times, as Mr. Robert Bruce, Mr. Robert Boyd, Mr. Robert Blair, Mr. Samuel Rutherford, and Mr. John Livingstone, she was on terms of intimate friendship, and her many Christian virtues procured her a high place in their esteem, and, indeed, in the esteem of all ranks and classes of her countrymen. Experiencing in her own heart the saving influence of divine truth, she was desirous that others in like manner might experience its saving power. And with this view, she encouraged the preaching of the gospel, exercising a generous hospitality and liberality toward its ministers, receiving them into her house and supplying them with money. In his life written by himself, Mr. John Livingstone speaks of residing for some time during the course of his ministry in the house of Kilmarnock with worthy Lady Boyd and mentions her as one of four ladies of rank of whom he got at several times supply of money. Footnote. The other ladies were the Countess of Wigton, Lady Innerteal, and the Countess of Eglinton. Select biographies printed for the Wadrill Society, Volume 1, page 148. End footnote. During the struggles of the Presbyterians in behalf of the liberties of the Church for many years previous to the Second Reformation, it was the practice of the more zealous among them, both with the view of promoting their own personal piety and of commending to God the desolate condition of the Church to hold meetings in various parts of the country for humiliation and prayer on such stated days as were agreed upon by general correspondence, and such as could not conveniently attend at the particular place fixed upon in the part of the country where they resided, not unfrequently kept a diet either at their own house or at the house of a friend, where a few assembled. And in these cases they endeavored, if possible, to obtain the presence of a minister. Of these private social meetings, Lady Boyd was an encourager, and when it was inconvenient or impossible for her to be present at the appointed place of meeting in her locality, she spent the day in humiliation and prayer in her own house. A letter which she wrote to Mr. Robert Boyd of Trockrig, then principal of the College of Glasgow, requesting him to favor her with his presence at her house on one of these occasions, has been preserved and may be given as illustrating the pious spirit by which she was distinguished. It is without date, but from the subject matter it was probably written about 1620 or 1621, and is as follows. Right Honorable Sir, seeing it hath pleased God, my husband, my Lord is content that I bring the, the bairns to the landwart. Footnote. Landwart, Scottish for country. End footnote. I thought good to advertise you of it, that you may do me that great pleasure as to come and bring your wife with you on Thursday, for I would fain have good company that day, since I have great need of help, being of myself very unable to spend that day as I ought. Now seeing it hath pleased God to move your heart to take care of my soul, and to be very comfortable to me, being he to whom only I have opened my secret griefs, and of whom I must crave counsel in those things which my other friends cannot and shall not know. It is common to God's children and the wicked to be under crosses, but crosses chase God's children to him. Oh, that anything would chase me to God! But alas, that which chases others to God, by the strength of sin it holds me further from God, for I am seeking for comfort in outward things, 
and the Lord will not let me find it there. When I should pray or read God's word or hear it preached or read, then my mind is possessed with thoughts how to eschew temporal grief or how to get temporal contentment. But alas, this doing is a building up of mountains betwixt my soul and the sense of God's presence, which only ministers contentment to a soul. And by thus doing I deserve to be plunged in infinite and endless grief. Now, sir, I would not trouble you longer with this discourse. Hoping to see you shortly, I rest your loving sister in Christ. Christian Hamilton, Baden Heath These religious meetings, which contributed greatly to foster a spirit of opposition to the innovations then attempted to be imposed upon the Church of Scotland, the bishops regarded with great jealousy, and they endeavored, if possible, to put them down by forcible means. Mr. Robert Bruce, having held two of them in his own house at Monkland, after his return to the south from Inverness, whither he had been banished for several years on account of his principles, he was delated to the king. And though the meetings were private, the number present at them, not exceeding twenty, he was, in consequence, forced to retire from Monkland and was ultimately again banished to Inverness. Mr. Robert Boyd, the correspondent of Lady Boyd, was also, for patronizing such meetings, greatly harassed. After the passing of the Perth Articles in the General Assembly of 1618, Boyd, though opposed to these articles, had not, owing to the mildness and peaceableness of his disposition, interfered publicly with the controversies thereby occasioned, from which the bishops concluded that, if not friendly to the innovations, he was at least neutral. But his attendance at these meetings in Mr. Robert Bruce's house... Footnote. Boyd regarded Bruce with peculiar respect and veneration. Speaking of him, he says, whom one may call justly the Basile or Bernard of our age. Wadrill's Life of Boyd, page 10. End footnote. And at similar meetings in other places, excited against him the hostility of the bishops and of the king, who, inferring from this his nonconforming propensities, immediately began to contemplate the adoption of harsh measures against him. Footnote. Wadrill's Life of Boyd, page 151. End footnote. In these circumstances, Lady Boyd addressed to him an encouraging letter. It is well written and bears testimony to the high opinion she entertained of Boyd as a man and as a Christian minister, as well as finally illustrates the heroic spirit by which she was animated and shows how well qualified she was to cheer up the hearts of such as were subjected to persecution for righteousness' sake. It is dated December 17th, but the year is omitted. Its contents, however, indicate that it was written in the year 1621, and it is as follows. Right Honorable Sir, I hear there is some appearance of your trouble by reason the King's Majesty is displeased with you for being with Mr. Robert Bruce. Since I heard of these unpleasant news, I have had a great desire to see you, for whatsoever is a grief to you is also grievous to me, for since it pleased God to bring me to acquaintance with you, your good advice and pious instructions have oft times refreshed my very soul. And now if I may if I be separated from you, so as not to have occasion to pour out my griefs unto you and receive counsel and comfort from you, truly I wot not what to do. And as I regret my own particular loss, much more may I regret the great loss 
our Kirk sustains and is threatened with. But as for you, if the Lord should honor you and set you to suffer for his name, I trust in his mercy he shall strengthen you and make his power perfect in your weakness. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And the apostle says, Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now if ye be called to this honor, I pray God give you his grace that ye may account it your honor. For if ye suffer with Christ, ye also shall reign with him. I trust in the mercy of God that all things shall work together for the best to you. If it might please our God, who is merciful, to continue you in your ministry, I humbly crave it. But if he will glorify himself in your suffering, his good will be done. You will lose nothing here, and what ye lose, it will be recompensed a hundredfold. The loss will be ours, who are left as sheep without a shepherd, ready to wander and be devoured by wolves. Now if I have a wandering soul, the Lord in mercy pity me, for I am afraid of making defection if the bread of life cannot can if the bread of life be not continued with me. In sincerity it will not be philosophy nor eloquence will draw me from the broad way of perdition, unless a voice be lifted up like a trumpet to tell me my sin. The Lord give us the spirit of wisdom, even that wisdom that will prove wise in the end, when the wise men of this world will be calling upon the hills and the mountains. O Lord, give us grace to provide our oil here, that we may enter in with the bridegroom, and be made partakers of his riches and joy, when they that have embraced the world and denied Christ shall have their portion with the devil. Sir, I will not trouble you further at this time. If you have leisure... I would be glad to see you, or at any other time, and to hear from you. So remembering my duty to your wife, and commending you and her, and the children to God, I rest most affect- your most affectionate sister at power, Christian Hamilton, Baden Heath, December 17th. From this letter it appears that Lady Boyd sat under the ministry of Mr. Boyd. Footnote. At the time this letter was written, Boyd, besides being principal of the College of Glasgow, was minister of Govan. End footnote. Which ministry she greatly valued, as she had good reason to do, if we may judge of his pastoral instructions from the specimens of his theological writings, which have been published, and Boyd having become obnoxious to the bishops and the kings, she was apprehensive of being deprived of his public ministrations as well as of his society in private, by his being removed from his charge and perhaps obliged to leave the country. The result was that, demitting his situation as principal of the College of Glasgow, he retired to his estate of Trochrig, and afterward, to the day of his death, suffered in various ways on account of his nonconformity. It is not easy, says Wadrow, upon such a subject not to mix a little gall with my ink. But I shall only say... It's a remaining stain and must be in the eyes of all that fear God and know what prayer is upon the bishops of this period and the government who were brought by their importunity to persecute such eminent persons as Mr. Bruce and Mr. Boyd for joining in such meetings for prayer in such a time as this. Mr. Bruce was confined. Mr. Boyd was informed against to the king. And this, as the writer of his life notices, 
was one mainspring of the violent opposition made against him. Such procedure no doubt is a reproach upon a Protestant, yea, upon a country that bears the name of Christian. Footnote, Wadrow's Life of Robert Boyd, page 151. As another specimen of the pious spirit which breathed in Lady Boyd's epistolary correspondence, we may quote another of her letters to Mr. Boyd, which is without date, but which Wadrill supposes was written about harvest 1622. She thus writes, My husband has written for me to come to your feast, but in truth it were better for me to be called to a fast. I trow, footnote, trow is Scottish for believe, end footnote, I trow the Lord of hosts is calling to weeping and fasting and sackcloth. I pray you, sir, remember me in your prayers to God, that he may supply to me the want of your counsels and comforts, and all other wants to me, and that at this time, and at all other times, he would give me grace to set his majesty before me, that I may walk as in his sight and study to approve myself to him. Now, sir, I entreat you, when you have leisure, write to me, and advertise me how ye and yours are, and likewise stir me up to seek the Lord. Show me how I shall direct to you, for I must crave leave to trouble you at some times. Now I pray God to recompense ten thousandfold your kindness to me with the daily increase of all saving grace here, and endless glory hereafter. Remember me to Mr. Zachary. Desire him to come, and bear my Lord company a while after ye are settled. I entreat when you come back again to Glasgow that ye may come here, for I think I have not taken my leave of you yet. Till then, and ever, I rest your loving sister in Christ to my power, Christian Hamilton. Footnote Wadrill's Life of Robert Boyd, pages 273 and 274 End of footnote In 1628, Lady Boyd was left a widow a second time, Lord Boyd having died in August that year at the early age of 33. To this nobleman she had a son, Robert, seventh Lord of Boyd, and six daughters. One, Helen, who died unmarried. Two, Agnes, married to Sir George Morrison of Dersey, in Fife. Three, Jean married to Sir Alexander Morrison of Prestongrange in the county of Haddington. 4. Marion married to Sir James Dundas of Arniston. 5. Isabel married first to John Sinclair of Stevenson, secondly to John Grierson of Lagg. And 6. Christian married to Sir William Scott of Harden. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage of Scotland, Volume 2, page 35. End footnote. At the period of the attempted imposition of the Book of Canons in the service book or liturgy upon the Scottish Church by royal authority, many, both ministers and laity, were subjected to persecution for resisting those invasions on the liberties of the Church, and to such persons as might be anticipated from the benevolence of her character and her ecclesiastical principles, Lady Boyd was at all times heartily disposed to extend her encouragement and aid by letter, word, or deed. When Rutherford was confined to Aberdeen, she maintained epistolary intercourse with him, and that worthy minister repeated 
repeatedly expresses how much his soul was refreshed by her letters, as well as gratefully acknowledges that she ministered to him in his bonds. Footnote, Weatherford's Letters, page 205-617, White and Kennedy's Edition, 1848. End footnote. She also took a friendly interest in his brother, Mr. George, who was a teacher in Kirkudbright, but who, for nonconformity, had been summoned in November 1636 before the High Commission and condemned to resign his charge and to remove from Kirkudbright before the ensuing term of Whitsunday. Footnote, Murray's Life of Rutherford, page 49 and 93. End footnote. Rutherford frequently expresses his gratitude to her for her kindness to his brother, who, after his ejection, had taken refuge in Ayrshire. He thus writes to her from Aberdeen on the 7th of March, 1637. I think myself many ways obliged to your ladyship for your love to my afflicted brother, now embarked with me in that same cause. His lord hath been pleased to put him on truth's side. I hope that your ladyship will befriend him with your counsel and countenance in that country where he is a stranger. And your ladyship needeth not fear but your kindness to his own will will be put up into Christ's accounts. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 205. End footnote. In another letter to her from the same place in September that year, he says, All that your ladyship can expect for your good Goodwill to me and my brother, a wronged servant for Christ, is the prayers of a prisoner of Jesus to whom I recommend your ladyship and your house and children. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 494. End footnote. And in a communication to her from St. Andrews in 1640, a considerable time after he had returned from his confinement in Aberdeen, he thus expresses himself. I put all the favors which you have bestowed upon my brother, upon Christ's score, in whose books are many such counts, and who will requite them. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 606. End footnote. Meanwhile, she was not neglectful of the cultivation of personal piety. As she advanced in life, she continued with increasing ardor to practice the Christian duties to cultivate holiness of character, to confide in the Savior, and to make sure of eternal life. That such were her Christian aspirations, endeavors, and attainments is evident from her correspondence with the same excellent man, from which we learn that as the Father of Lights had opened her eyes to discover that whoever would be a Christian in deed and in truth must exercise self-denial, she was resolved to practice that duty to pluck out the right eye and to cut off the right hand and keep fast hold of the Son of God, that she had not changed in the thoughts she had entertained of Christ, and that her purpose still was by all means to take the kingdom of heaven by violence. Footnote Rutherford's Letters, pages 205 and 492 End footnote It was indeed her personal piety which excited and enlivened her zeal in the public cause of God, and her valued correspondent, satisfied that the more she improved in the former, she would be the more distinguished for the latter, expresses his desire in a letter to her in 1640 that she might be builded more and more upon the stone laid in Zion, and then she would be fit 
be the more fit to have a hand in rebuilding our Lord's fallen tabernacle in this land, in which, he adds, ye shall find great peace when ye come to grip with death, the king of terrors. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 606. End footnote. As a means of promoting her spiritual improvement, she was in the practice of keeping a diary in which she recorded her religious exercises and experiences, her defects and attainments, her sins and mercies, an expedient which Christians have sometimes found to be of great utility in promoting their vigilance, humility, gratitude, and dependence upon God. She used every night, said Mr. Livingstone, to write what had been the state of her soul all the day, and what she had observed of the Lord's dealing. Footnote. Livingstone's Memorable Characteristics. End footnote. Such memorandums she, however, appears to have intended solely for her own eye, and no remains of them have been transmitted to posterity. In the autumn of the year 1640, Lady Boyd met with a painful trial in the death of three of her brothers, and others of her relatives in, a, in very distressing circumstances. Thomas, 2nd Earl of Haddington, and Robert Hamilton of West Binning, in the county of Linlithgow, her brothers by her father's second wife. Footnote. Her father's second wife was Margaret, daughter of James Fowlis of Collington in the county of Edinburgh. End footnote. Patrick Hamilton, her natural brother, Sir John Hamilton of Red House, her cousin German, and Sir Alexander Erskine, fourth son of the seventh Earl of Mar, brother-in-law to her brother Thomas, all perished at Dunglass Castle in the county of Haddington when it was blown up on the 30th of August that year. They had attached themselves to the Covenanters, and when General Leslie marched into England that same year against Charles I, they were left behind by the Scottish Parliament in order to resist the English incursions, and Thomas, 2nd Earl of Haddington, who had the command of the party left, thus left, fixed his quarters at Dunglass Castle. While his lordship, about mid midday on the 30th of August, was standing in a court of the castle, surrounded by his friends now named, and several other gentlemen to whom he was reading a letter he had just received from General Leslie, a magazine of gunpowder contained in a vault in the castle blew up, and one of the side walls instantly overwhelmed him and all his companions, with the exception of four who were thrown by the force of the explosion to a considerable distance. The Earl's body was found among the rubbish and buried at Tyningham. Besides this nobleman, three or four score of gentlemen lost their lives. It was reported that the magazine was de designedly blown up by the Earl's page, Edward Paris, an English boy who was so enraged on account of his master having jestingly told him that his countrymen were a pack of cowards to suffer themselves to be beaten and to run away at Newburn, that he took a red-hot iron and thrust it into one of the powder barrels, perishing himself with the rest. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage of Scotland, Volume 1, page 680. Scots' Staggering State of Scots' Statesmen. End of footnote. One of the most beautiful of Rutherford's letters was addressed to Lady Boyd on this melancholy occasion. I wish, says he, 
that I could speak or write what might do good to your ladyship, especially now when I think we cannot but have deep thoughts of the deep and bottomless ways of our Lord, in taking away, with a sudden and wonderful stroke, your brothers and friends. You may know that all who die for sin die not in sin, and that none can teach the almighty knowledge. He answereth none of our courts, and no man can say, What doest thou? It is true that your brothers saw not many summers, but adore and fear the sovereignty of the great potter who maketh and marreth his clay vessels when and how it pleaseth him. Oh, what wisdom is it to believe and not to dispute, to subject the thoughts of his court and not to repine at any act of his justice. He hath done it, all flesh be silent. It is impossible to be submissive and religiously patient if you stay your thoughts down among the confused rollings and wheels of second causes, as, oh, the place, oh, the time, oh, if this had been, this had not followed, oh, the linking of this incident with this time and place. Look up to the master motion in the first wheel. I believe, Christian lady, your faith leaveth that much Charity to our Lord's judgments as to believe, howbeit you be in blood sibbed to that cross, that yet you are exempted and freed from the gall and wrath that is in it. I dare not deny, but the king of terrors dwelleth in the wicked man's tabernacle. Brimstone shall be scattered on his habitation. Job 18.15 Yet, madam, it is safe for you to live upon the faith of his love, whose arms are overwatered and pointed with love and mercy to his own, and who knoweth how to take you and yours out of the roll and book of the dead. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, pages 617 and 618. End footnote. In less than three months after this visitation, Lady Boyd lost her son, Lord Boyd, who died of a fever on the 17th of November, 1640, at the early age of 24. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, pages 635 and 636. End footnote. But her sorrow under this bereavement was alleviated from the hope which, on good grounds, she was enabled to entertain that her son, who was deservedly dear to her, had exchanged the present for a better world. Trained up in the fear of God, he gave pleasing indication of early piety, and embracing the sentiments of the covenanters, entered with all the interest and ardor of youthful zeal into their contendings against the encroachments of the court on the rights of the church. To this ample testimony is borne in Rutherford's letters. Writing to him from Aberdeen in 1637, Rutherford, hearing of his zeal for the borne-down and oppressed gospel, affectionately stimulates him to continued exertion in the same cause and in a subsequent letter to him he says, I am glad to hear that you, in the morning of your short day, mind Christ, and that you love the honor of his crown and kingdom. Ye are one of Zion's born sons. Your honorable and Christian parents would venture you upon Christ's errands. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, pages 139 and 469. End footnote. Addressing Lady Boyd from Aberdeen, May 1, 1637, Rutherford thus writes, I have reasoned with your son at large. I rejoice to see him set his face in the right earth. Now, when the nobles love the sunny side of the gospel best and are afraid 
that Christ wants soldiers and shall not be able to do for himself. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 308. End footnote. And in another letter to her, he expresses his gratitude to this generous and benevolent youth, who, says he, was kind to me in my bonds and was not ashamed to own me. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 548. End footnote. Lord Boyd was one of those noblemen who, on the 22nd of February, 1638, ascended the cross of Edinburgh to protest against the proclamation which was that day made, containing His Majesty's approbation of the service book, granting a dispensation to the noblemen and gentlemen who opposed it for their past meetings and discharging all their meetings for the future under pain of treason. Footnote. Roth's Relation, etc., Page 67. End footnote. He subscribed the National Covenant when renewed on the 1st of March that year in the Greyfriars Church, and zealously cooperated with the Covenanters in their proceedings in opposition to the measures of the court. In her other son, John, 10th Lord Lindsay, afterward Earl of Crawford Lindsay, Lady Boyd had also much comfort. His, relig his religious sentiments coincided with her own, and his active zeal in defending the liberties of the Church was associated with sincere piety and a high character for moral worth, which he maintained unimpaired to the close of a long life. In a letter to him from Aberdeen in September 1637, Rutherford writes, Your noble ancestors have been enrolled among the worthies of this nation as the sure friends of the bridegroom and valiant for Christ. I hope that you will follow on to come to the streets for the same Lord. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 466. End footnote. Nor was the hope thus expressed disappointed. He was also one of the noblemen who, on the 22nd of February, 1637, appeared at the Cross of Edinburgh to protest against His Majesty's proclamation already referred to. He likewise subscribed the National Covenant when renewed at Edinburgh a few days after, and cordially supported the Covenanters, attending their meetings and giving them the benefit of his counsel and aid. Footnote. Roth's Relation, etc. Passim. End footnote. He thus secured a high place in the confidence of his party. Writing of this nobleman and of Lord Boyd to their mother, Rutherford says, your ladyship is blessed with children who are honored to build up Christ's waste places. I believe that your ladyship will think them well bestowed in that work and that Zion's beauty is your joy. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 605. The letter is dated St. Andrews, 1640. For a further account of Lord Lindsay, see Notice of Duchess of, Ra of Roths. End of footnote. Some of Lady Boyd's daughters were also distinguished for personal piety and for a resolute adherence to duty in the face of persecution. The sufferings endured by her daughter Christian, the wife of Sir William Scott of Harden, in the reign of Charles II for attending conventicles have already briefly been stated in the introduction. We also know that another of her daughters, Helen, wife of Sir William Scott of Ardross, was an excellent woman. Rutherford, when in London, 1640 and 1644, corresponded with Lady Boyd, giving her accounts of the state of religious parties there, 
and informing her of the proceedings of the Westminster Assembly of which, she, of which he was a member. Footnote Weatherford's Letters, page 625 and 632. End of footnote. During the latter part of the year 1644, when the Marquis of Montrose came into Scotland, and during the greater part of the following year, our country suffered much from that ruthless renegade who, with an army composed of Highlanders and Irish Papists, perpetrated the most atrocious deeds of cruelty, lust, and rapine. But in September 1645 he was completely defeated at Philippa by Lieutenant General David Lestley, who had come home with some regiments from England where the regular troops of Scotland had been engaged. The joy which this victory diffused among our countrymen was great. As an evidence of this we may mention the following incident which took place on a Sabbath day at the parish church of Ely where Lady Boyd was present, hearing sermon. About the close of the afternoon's discourse by Mr. Robert Trail, the minister of the parish, David Lindsay, brother to Lord Balcars, came into the church with a letter to her from her son, Earl of Crawford Lindsay, containing the tidings of Montrose's defeat. Public worship being concluded, he delivered it to her in the church. And the people all staying to hear the news, the letter was read. On hearing its contents, they were so overjoyed that they all returned into the church and solemnly gave thanks to God for the deliverance vouchsafed to the country by this signal victory gained over an enemy whose successes had made him formidable and his barbarities very generally detested. Footnote Extracts from Mr. Robert Trail's diary in manuscript Letters to Wadrow, Volume 19, number 68, in Advocate's Library. End footnote. Lady Boyd died in the house of her daughter, Lady Ardross, in the parish of Ely, about the beginning of the year 1646. On her deathbed, she was frequently visited by Mr. Robert Trail, minister of that parish, who informs us in his diary that she died very comfortably. Her funeral took place on the 6th of February and was attended by a large concourse of people of all ranks. All the members of Parliament which had been sitting in St. Andrews were invited to it, and though the Parliament closed on the 4th of that month, all its members stayed in town, partly because the next day was appointed to be kept as a day of solemn humiliation through the whole kingdom, and partly to testify their respect for this lady by following her mortal remains to their last resting place. Mr. Robert Blair, then Minister of St. Andrews, who was well acquainted with her and who highly appreciated the excellence of her Christian character, also paid to her this last tribute of friendship and wrote two epitaphs in honor of her memory, the one in Latin and the other in English. Footnote Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 180. End footnote. Neither of which, however, we have seen. Rutherford, who was at that time in London attending the Westminster Assembly, on hearing of the death of a friend and correspondent he so highly esteemed, addressed to her daughter, Lady Ardross, a consolatory letter. It hath seemed good, as I hear, says he, to him that hath appointed the bounds for the number of our months to gather in a sheaf of ripe corn in the death of your Christian mother into his garner 
It is the more evident that winter is near when apples without the violence of wind fall of their own accord off the tree. She is now above the winter, with a little change of place, not of Saviour. Only she enjoyeth him now without messages, and in his own immediate presence, from whom she heard by letters and messengers before. He further says, Ye may easily judge, madam, what a large recompense is made to all her service, her walking with God and her sorrows, with the first cause of the soul's eye upon the shining and admirably beautiful face of the Lamb that is in the midst of that fair and white army, which is there, and with the first draught and taste of the fountain of life, fresh and new at the wellhead, to say nothing of the enjoying of that face without date far more than this term of life which we now enjoy. And it cost her no more to go thither than to suffer death to do her this piece of service. For by him who was dead and is alive, she was delivered from the second death. What then is the first death to the second? Not a scratch of the skin of a finger to the endless second death. And now she sitteth for eternity, male free, in a very considerable land which hath more than four summers in the year. Oh, what springtime is there! Even the smelling of the odors of that great and eternally blooming rose of Sharon for ever and ever. What a singing life is there! There is not a dumb bird in all that large field, but all sing and breathe out heaven, joy, glory, dominion to the high prince of that newfound land. And verily the land is the sweeter that Jesus Christ paid so dear a rent for it, and he is the glory of the land. All which, he adds, for Lady Ardross, as has, has been said before, was a woman of like spirit with her mother, I hope doth not so much mitigate and allay your grief for her part, though truly this should seem sufficient, as the unerring expectation of the dawning of that day upon yourself, and the hope you have of the fruition of that same king and kingdom to your own soul. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 655. See a letter of Mr. Robert McMord to Lady Ardross in Appendix Number 1. End footnote. Elizabeth Melville, Lady Colross. Elizabeth Melville, a contemporary of the two ladies previously noticed, was the daughter of Sir James Melville of Hall Hill in Fife. Her father, who was one of the most accomplished statesmen and courtiers of his age, was ambassador from Queen Mary to Queen Elizabeth, and a privy councillor to King James VI. He was also a man of sincere piety, and as Mr. John Livingstone informs us, professed he had got assurance from the Lord that himself, a wife, and all his children should meet in heaven. Footnote, Livingstone's Memorable Characteristics in Select Biographies Printed for the Wadrill Society, Volume 1, page 346. End footnote. After a long and active life, he died on the 13th November, 1617. Her mother was Christian, seventh daughter of David Boswell of Balmuto. Footnote, Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, pages 113 and 310. End footnote. Her husband, James Colville, was the eldest son of Alexander Colville, commendator of Culross. On the death of James, second Lord Colville of Culross in 1640, he became of right 
third Lord Colville, but did not assume that title. At what period the subject of this notice experienced the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit, we are ignorant, but few women of her day became more eminent for exemplary piety and religious intelligence, or more extensively known and more highly esteemed among the ministers and professors of the Church of Scotland. Taking her place among those who resisted the attempts made to wrest from the Church her own free and independent jurisdiction, and to bring her in her worship and whole administration under the entire control of the crown, she interested herself greatly in their contendings. The fortitude displayed by the defenders of truth and freedom commanded her admiration. Their sufferings excited her sympathy. To these sentiments and feelings she gave expression in the following sonnet of her own composition, which she sent to Mr. John Welsh, when, for holding a general assembly at Aberdeen in July 1605, he was imprisoned in the castle of Blackness, and so closely confined as to be secluded from all intercourse with his friends. My dear brother, with courage bear the cross. Joy shall be joined with all thy sorrow here. High is thy hope, disdain this earthly dross. Once shall you see the wished day appear. Now it is dark, the sky cannot be clear. After the clouds it shall be calm anon. Wait on his will whose blood hath, bought, hath brought thee dear. Extol his name, though outward joys be gone. Look to the Lord, thou art not left alone. Since he is thine, what pleasure canst thou take? He is at hand and hears thy every groan. End out thy fight and suffer for his sake. A sight most bright thy soul shall shortly see, when store of glory thy rich reward shall be. Footnote. Glory is Scottish for glory. Also, this poem is in the Wadrow Manuscripts, Advocates Library, Volume 29, Number 4. End footnote. The pious and generous feeling breathed in these lines could not fail to gratify and encourage this great and good man under his sufferings. In a similar strain, she wrote to Mr. William Rigg of Atherney, Bailey of Edinburgh, who was imprisoned in Blackness Castle. Footnote. For some account of this castle, see the life of Lady Caldwell. End footnote. In 1624, for refusing to communicate kneeling after that practice had been introduced into the churches of the city, reminding him, among other things, by a pleasing and ingenious antithetic play upon the name and gloom of his prison, that the darkness of blackness was not the blackness of darkness. Footnote. Livingstone's Characteristics in Select Biographies, printed for the Wadrow Society, Volume 1, page 342. End footnote. How much her heart went along with the contendings of the Presbyterians against the attempts of James VI to establish prelacy in its ceremonies, as well as how highly she was respected, is also evident from the following incidental allusion to her in Kirkton's history. After stating that King James in his old age undertook a journey to Scotland to establish the English ceremonies, the historian goes on to say, So, in a corrupt assembly at Perth, 
he first got his five articles concluded and thereafter enacted in Parliament at Edinburgh in the year 1621. This Parliament was always by common consent called the Black Parliament, not only because of the grievous acts made therein, but also because of a number of dismal, ominous prodigies which attended it. The vote itself, which accomplished the design of the meeting, being accompanied with a horrible darkness, thunderclaps, fire, an unheard-of tempest, to the astonishment of both Parliament and city, as was observed by all. The bishops had procured all the dissatisfied ministers to be discharged the town. So diverse of them, upon the last day of the Parliament, went out to Sheens near Edinburgh, where in a friend's house they spent the day in fasting and prayer, expecting the event of which they were as then uncertain. After the aged ministers had prayed in the morning with great straightening, at length a messenger from the city with many tears assured them that all was concluded and contrary to their, their request. This brought them all into a fit of heaviness till a godly lady there present, desired Mr. David Dixon, being at that time present, might be employed to pray. And though he was at that time but a young man and not very considerable for his character, Yet was he so wonderfully assisted and enlarged for the space of two hours that he made bold to prophesy that from that discouraging day and forward the work of the gospel should both prosper and flourish in Scotland, notwithstanding all the laws made to the prejudice of it. Footnote. Kirkton's History, pages 16, 17, and 18. End footnote. Crichton has not recorded the name of the lady who suggested that Dixon should be employed in prayer, but Livingstone, who narrates the same incident in his memorable characteristics, informs us that Lady Colross told him she was the person by whom the suggestion was made. Footnote. Select Biographies, printed for the Wadrill Society, Volume 1, page 317. End footnote. On the preaching of the Gospel... Lady Colross attended with exemplary regularity. She was also much in the practice of frequenting sacramental solemnities. In those days, the dispensation of the Lord's Supper in the parishes of ministers famed for preaching the gospel was flocked to by vast multitudes from the surrounding districts, so that often many thousands were assembled together to partake of or to witness this feast of love. These were interesting occasions. They generally took place in the summer season, and the sermons were preached in the open air. The solemnity of the public services powerfully engaged the attention as well as the affected as well as affected the heart. And in the fervent love which pervaded the private Christian fellowship of the people with one another, there was exhibited a spectacle on which angels might have looked with delight. The families of the parish on whom their minister was careful to enforce the duty of entertaining strangers from the consideration that thereby some have entertained angels unawares exemplified an open-hearted and open-handed hospitality. Many of them accom accommodated so great a number that their domestic circle had the appearance of a small congregation and it seemed as if the primitive days of Christianity had returned when the disciples had all things in common. Thus Christians from different parts of the country became acquainted with one another. Fraternal love was cultivated, and by their religious conversation and devotional exercises they strengthened the ardor of their mutual piety. It is no wonder that such seasons were looked forward to with eager expectation, 
and that they left behind them a refreshing and an ever-cherished remembrance. Few were more in the habit of waiting upon these observances than Lady Colross, and when circumstances prevented her from being present, she frequently secured the services of a friend to take notes of the sermons for her use. She indeed appears not to have been without fears of exceeding in her attendance on sacraments the bounds of duty, and of thereby neglecting the concerns of her family at home. At one time, meeting with Euphan McCullen, a poor but pious woman in the parish of Kilconquhar, who is well known among the devout of her day, and who is said to have seldom prayed without getting a positive answer, Lady Colross requested her to pray for her in regard to the outward condition of her family. On being inquired at what answer she had got, the good old woman replied that the answer was, He that provideth not for his own house hath denied the faith. At which Lady Colross said, Now you have killed me, for I go to preachings and communions here and there, neglecting the care of my own family. Euphan replies, Mistress, if you be guilty in that respect, you have reason to be humbled for it. But it was not said in that sense to me. But the Lord said, I that have said, He that provideth not for his own is worse than an infidel. Will not I provide for her and her house, seeing she is mine? Footnote, Livingstone's Characteristics in Select Biographies, Volume 1, page 339. End footnote. One of the principal places which Lady Colross frequented for enjoying the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was Lanark the minister of which parish at that time was Mr. William Livingstone, the father of the celebrated Mr. John Livingstone, minister of Ancrum. Residing in the family of the minister of the parish on these solemnities, and also occasionally at other times, she was struck with the promising piety, the love of learning, and the suavity of manners which characterized young Livingstone, and seems to have early anticipated his future eminence as a minister of the gospel, as she did that of Mr. David Dixon, when an obscure young man, for among other gifts which distinguished her, she was an acute judge of both character and talents. Livingstone, on the other hand, formed a high estimate of her Christian excellence, as well as of her intellectual endowments, and he records in his life the benefit he derived from her religious conversation and demeanor during those occasions on which she was a guest in his father's house. Footnote, Life of Mr. John Livingstone in Select Biographies, Volume 1, page 130. End footnote. An intimate Christian friendship thus came to be formed between her and Livingstone, which lasted till her death, and an epistolary intercourse was maintained between them. After the grave had closed over her, Livingstone continued to retain a lively and grateful recollection of her talents and piety, In his memorable characteristics, he has given her a place among the professors of the Church of Scotland of his acquaintance who were eminent for grace and gifts. And he thus describes her, Of all that I ever saw, she was the most unwearied in religious exercises, and the more she attained access to God therein, she hungered the more. At the communion in Schatz in June 1630, the night after the Sabbath was spent in prayer by a great many Christians in a large room where her bed was, and in the morning, all going apart for their private devotion, she went into the bed and drew the curtains that she might set herself to prayer. 
William Rigg of Atherney, coming into the room, and hearing her have great motion upon her, although she spoke not out, he desired her to speak out, saying that there was none in the room but him and her woman, as at that time there was no other. She did so, and the door being opened, the room filled full. She continued in prayer with wonderful assistance for large three hours' time. Footnote, Livingstone's Memorable Characteristics in Select Biographies, Volume 1, page 346. End footnote. The account here given of Lady Colross's ardent devotional feeling, as it appeared at the communion in shots, will perhaps excite the ridicule of some who may be disposed to regard her as actuated more by ostentation and enthusiasm than by modest, sincere, and enlightened piety. But a slight attention to the simplicity of the times in which she lived will show how little ground there is for pronouncing so harsh a censure. More primitive in their manners and habits than in the present day, the people of those times are not to be judged of by modern customs, nor condemned for that which, though unfit for imitation in the altered state of art of society, conveyed to their minds nothing inconsistent with true delicacy. And before we censure her unusual earnestness in prayer and the uncommon length of time during which the exercise was continued, let us remember that in that age the influences of the Holy Spirit were poured out upon the good in no ordinary measure, imparting to them a high degree of spiritual vitality and giving a peculiar depth and fervor to their piety. This consideration alone, not to mention other considerations, will serve to explain why public prayers and sermons, as well as social prayer, protracted to an extent to which the patience of few hearers would now be equal, so far from fatiguing, seemed only to refresh and invigorate our hardier and more devout ancestors. Nor is it to be forgotten should we feel a tendency to find fault with these simple annals of primitive piety, that on the very day on which this lady was engaged in the manner described, there took place such a remarkable outpouring of the Spirit at the Kirk of Shots as has hardly been equaled since the days of the Apostles. And who can tell how far this was vouchsafed in answer to the prayers of this devout woman, as well as in answer to the prayers of those who passed the night between the Sabbath and Monday morning in this exercise, poured forth with great earnestness and importunity to him who has promised the effusion of the Spirit upon the Church as the fruit of believing prayer. It is also worthy of notice that, as has been previously stated, it was at her suggestion that the ministers assisting in the celebration of the Lord's Supper on that occasion laid the work of addressing the people on the Monday upon Mr. John Livingstone, whose discourse was the instrument in the hand of the Spirit of turning so many from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. These fruits of Mr. Livingstone's ministry served to increase the high estimation in which Lady Colross held him as an ambassador of Christ, and upon the death of Mr. Robert Colville, minister of Colross, in 1630, she was very desirous of having him settled minister of that parish. Footnote. On December 5, 1640, or possibly 1630, this minister's son, Mr. Robert Colville, in Colross, was restored heir to his father in the lands of Nether, Canetter, in the regality of Dunfermline. End footnote. 
This appears from a letter she wrote to him dated 25th of March, 1631. I confess, says she, it is no time for me to quarrel. Footnote. In the preceding part of the letter she had been blaming Livingstone, who had gone to Ireland in the autumn of the year 1630 for his haste in leaving Scotland. End footnote. Now, when God is quarreling with us and has taken away our dear pastor who has preached the word of God amongst us, Almost forty years, plainly and powerfully, a sore stroke to this congregation and chiefly to me, to whom he was not only a pastor and a brother, but under God a husband and a father to my children. Next his own family, I have the greatest loss. Your sudden voyage has troubled me more since than ever, and many of this congregation who would have preferred you to others and would have used all means possible if you had been in this land, but now I fear the charm is spilt. Yet you cannot go out of my mind nor out of the mind of some others who wish you were here with our hearts to supply that place and pray for it if it be the Lord's will, though by appearance there is no possibility of it, for I think they have agreed with another. Yet if God have a work, he can bring it about and work contrary to all means, for there is nothing too hard for him. Footnote. Letters from Lady Colross to Mr. John Livingstone in Select Biographies, printed for the Wadrill Society, Volume 1, page 358. End footnote. The wish expressed in this letter was not, however, gratified. The parish of Colross was supplied with another minister, Mr. John Duncan. Footnote. Records of the Synod of Fife, page 236. End footnote and Livingstone remained in Ireland, but was soon after, in consequence of his nonconformity, first suspended from the exercise of his ministry, then deposed, and next excommunicated by the Bishop of Down, and ultimately forced to leave the country. It has been formerly said that Lady Colross and Livingstone maintained an epistolary correspondence. A number of her letters to him have been lately printed. Written in a homely and quaint phraseology peculiar to that age, they yet contain nothing at variance with genuine good taste or sobriety of feeling. Characterized throughout by the familiar, they occasionally indulge in the facetious, and their prevailing spirit is that of fervent piety and an ardent attachment to the public cause for which Presbyterians were then contending, combined with a solid and enlightened judgment. As a specimen of her skill and ability in encouraging the ministers of the gospel under their sufferings for the sake of Christ, a part of her letter to Livingstone on the occasion of his being suspended from the ministry, dated Hall Hill, 10th December, 1631, may be quoted. It is headed with the following text of Scripture. Surely the rage of man shall turn to thy praise. The remnant of their rage wilt thou restrain. And it begins as follows. My very worthy and dear brother, I have rece- I received your letter and have no time to answer you as I would. I thank the Lord who upholds you in all your trials and temptations. It is good for you to be holden in exercise. Otherwise, I would suspect that all were not well with you. God is faithful as you find by experience, and will not try you above your strength. Courage, dear brother, all is in love, all works together for the best. You must be hewn and hammered down and dressed and prepared before you be a living stone fit for his building. And if he be minded to make you meet to help 
To repair the ruins of his house, you must look for other manner of strokes than you have yet felt. You must feel your own weakness, that you may be humbled and cast down before him, that so you may pity poor weak ones that are borne down with infirmities. And when you are laid low and vile in your own eyes, then will he raise you up and refresh you with some blinks of his favorable countenance, that you may be able to comfort others with those consolations wherewith you have been comforted by him. This you know by some experience, blessed be God. And as strength and grace increase, look for stronger trials, fightings without, and fears within, the devil and his instruments against you, and your Lord hiding his face. You are deeply almost overwhelmed with troubles and terrors, and yet out of all this misery he is working some gracious work of mercy for the glory of his great name, the salvation and sanctification of your own soul, and for the comfort of his distressed children, here or there, or both, as pleases him. Up your heart, then, and prepare for the battle. Put on the whole armor of God. Though you be weak, you have a strong captain whose power is made perfect in weakness and whose grace is sufficient for you. What you want in yourself, you have in him, who is given to you of God to be your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, your treasure and treasurer who keeps all in store. Since he has put his work in your weak hands, look not for long ease here. You must feel the weight of that worthy calling and behold him under with the sense of your own weakness, that he may kithe, footnote, kithe is Scottish for show, end footnote, that he may kithe his strength in due time, a weak man and a strong God, who will not fail nor forsake you, but will furnish strength and gifts and grace, according to that employment that he puts in your hands. The pain is but for a moment, the pleasure everlasting. The battle is but short, your captain fights for you. Therefore the victory is certain, and the reward glorious. A crown and a kingdom are worth fighting for. Blessed be his name who fights all our battles and works all our works for us. Since all is in Christ and he ours, what would we have more but thankful hearts and grace to honor him in life and death, who is our, who is our advantage in life and death? who guides with his counsel and will bring us to his glory. To him be all honor, power, and praise, now and forever. Amen. Footnote. Select Biographies, Volume 1, pages 361 and 362. End footnote. Lady Colross was also the friend and correspondent of Mr. Samuel Rutherford, some of whose letters to her in 1636 and 1637 are preserved in the published collection of his letters. She was then considerably advanced in years, but had seen no reason for changing the sentiments on ecclesiastical questions which she had embraced in early life. Nor had her zeal in adhering to them abated. When Rutherford was summoned to appear before the Court of High Commission at Edinburgh in 1636, more than thirty years had passed over her head since she addressed Mr. John Welsh in the prison of Blackness. But the sufferings of good men in the cause of religious freedom still made her heart swell with emotions of sympathy, and hearing of the unjust proceedings instituted against the minister of Anwath, she addressed to him a letter giving expression to her sentiments and feelings. Rutherford lost no time in replying, 
and his answer is written with all the confidence of Christian friendship. Footnote Rutherford's Letters, pages 108-109 End footnote The best of God's people have sometimes been unequally yoked, and their children, instead of proving a comfort to them, have been the source of their most poignant grief. In these respects, Lady Colross was severely tried. Writing to Livingstone from Hall Hill, 10th of December, 1631, she says, Guiltiness in me and mine is my greatest cross. My great temptation now is that I fear my prayers are turned into sin. I find and see the clean contrary in me and mine, at least some of them. Footnote. She had a daughter to whom this complaint did not apply. In a letter to her from Aberdeen in 1637, Rutherford writes, Your son-in-law is now truly honored for his lord and master's cause. He is strong in the Lord, as he hath written to me, and his wife is his encourager, which should make you rejoice. Rutherford's Letter, page 437. End footnote. Samuel is going to the college in St. Andrews to a worthy master there, but I fear him deadly. I depend not on creatures. Pray earnestly for a blessing. He whom you know is like to overturn all and has broken all bands. Lord, pity him. There was some beginning of order, but all is wrong again. For the death of his brother makes him take liberty, so I have a double loss. Footnote. Select Biographies, Volume 1, pages 362-363. End footnote. It has been said that she here most probably refers to her son James, whose conduct often occasioned great anxiety to his mother. Footnote, Select Biographies, Volume 1, pages 362 and 363. End footnote. We are rather inclined to think that the reference is to her husband. Five or six years after this, she complains in a letter to Rutherford of the heavy trial she met with from the misconduct of one of her sons, who, so far from proving a restorer of her life and a nourisher of her old age, was to be to her a source of the bitterest sorrow. Rutherford, writing from Aberdeen in 1637, says in reply, As for your son, who is your grief, your Lord waited on you and me till we were ripe and brought us in. It is your part to pray and wait upon him. When he is ripe, he will be spoken for. Who can command our Lord's wind to blow? I know that it shall be your good in the latter end. That is one of your waters to heaven ye could not go about. There are fewer behind. I remember you and him and yours as I am able. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 437. End footnote. Whether this letter refers to her third son, Samuel, or to another of her sons, we are unable to determine. It is, however, certain that Samuel was far from embracing the principles or following the example of his mother. He was the author of the piece of Scottish... Entitled Mock Poem or Whig's Supplication in Two Parts, printed at London in 1681, a production which could not have been written by a man of strong sympathies. Its evident object is to provoke the mirth of the reader by setting forth in a ludicrous light the sufferings endured by the Presbyterians under Charles II and their endeavors to obtain the redress of their grievances. 
This betrays both bad taste and want of feeling. If for men to make themselves merry in any case over scenes of oppression and wretchedness is inconsistent with generous and humane feeling, it is evident that to make the barbarities exercised toward our Presbyterian ancestors the means of ministering to our gaiety, abstracting altogether from the consideration of their principles, can on no ground be vindicated. It is, in fact, nothing better than would be the spectacle of a man who, while looking on a fellow creature under the rack, amused himself by mimicking or by describing, in ludicrous phrase, the writhings and convulsions of the sufferer. Samuel Colville was also the author of a work entitled The Grand Impostor Discovered, or An Historical Dispute of the Papacy and Popish Religion. Number one, demonstrating the newness of both. Number two, by what artifices they are maintained. Number three, the contradictions of the Roman doctors in defending them. It was printed at Edinburgh in 1673 and is dedicated to the Duke of Lauderdale. In the dedication, the author states that he had the honor to be the Duke's con disciple, adding, at which time it did not obscurely appear what your grace would prove afterward. Also, having presented several trifles to your grace, at your two times being in Scotland, you seemed to accept of them with a favorable countenance which encouraged me to trouble your grace afresh. As we have already seen, Lady Colroth cultivated a taste for poetry. One of her poetical effusions, in particular, attracted the admiration of her friends and was published at their request so early as 1603. It is a thin quarto consisting of 16 pages and is printed in black letters with the following title. And Godly Dream, Complilet in Scottish Meter, B.M.M. Gentlewoman in Colross, at the request of her friends. Introit per angustam portam, nam lata est via quae ducet ad interitum. Footnote. That is, enter ye in at the straight gate, for broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. End footnote. Edinburgh, printed B. Robert Charteris, 1603. In this poem, as in Bunyan's immortal work, The Pilgrim's Progress, the progress and conclusion of the Christian's life is described under the similitude of a journey. Written with, with much liveliness of fancy and description, and with a fluency of versification superior to most of the poetical compositions of that age, it gained her at the time considerable reputation, and in the opinion of competent judges it establishes her claims to poetical powers of no mean order. As it is now rarely to be met with, a brief view of its subject matter may be given, and a few passages may be quoted as a specimen of the poetry of that period. It is introduced with a description of the heaviness of heart which the writer felt from her solitary musings on the depraved state of the world in her day, which she calls this false and iron age, and on the bias of her own heart to sin. Troubled with a train of reflections on these and similar topics, she endeavored to pray, but utterance failed her and she could only sigh until relieved by the effusion of tears when she poured forth her lamentations. Thus tranquilized, she retired to bed and, falling asleep, dreamed that her grief and lamentation were renewed and that with tears she besought God for succor. Lord Jesus, come! 
said I, and end my grief. My spirit is vexed, the captive would be free. All vice abounds, oh, send us some relief. I loathe to live, I wish dissolved to be. While with sighs and sobs she was pouring forth her complaint, she thought there appeared to her an angel of a shining countenance and loving looks, who entreated her to tell him the cause of her grief. Her reply is couched in these lines. I sighed again and said, Alas for me, my grief is great, I can it not declare. Into this earth I wander to and fro, a pilgrim poor, consumed with sighing fair. My sin, alas, increases mare and mare. I loathe my life, I irk to wander here. I long for heaven, my heritage is there. I long to live with my Redeemer here. The angel, pleased with this account of her grief, bade her rise up immediately and follow him, promising to be her guide and commanding her to refrain from her tears and to trust in his word and strength. By his endearing accents and at the sight of his fair countenance, her weary spirit revived and she humbly desired him to tell her his name. To which he answered, for he was no other person than the angel of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was her God, adding, in amplification of the gracious relation in which he stood to her, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, her spouse, her joy, rest, and peace, and then exhorting her thus, Rise up anon and follow after me. I shall lead thee into thy dwelling place, the land of rest thou longst so sore to see. I am thy Lord, that soon shall end thy race. Thanking him for his encouraging words, she declared her readiness to follow him and express an earnest desire speedily to see the land of rest which he promised her. He answered that the way to it was straight, that she had yet far to go, and that before reaching it she behooved to pass through great and numerous dangers which would try her feeble flesh. She admitted that her flesh was weak, but hoped that her spirit was willing, and besought him to be her guide in which case she would not be discouraged. She next gives the history of her journey under his conduct. Then up I rose and made no more delay. My feeble arm about his arm I cast. He went before and still guide the way. Though I was weak, my spirit did follow fast. Through moss and mires, through ditches deep we passed, through pricking thorns, through water and through fire through dreadful dens which made my heart aghast. He bore me up when I began to tire. After further describing herself and her guide as climbing high mountains, passing through vast deserts, wading through great waters and wending their way through wild woods, in which through the obstruction of briars it would have been impossible for her without his assistance to have proceeded, she says, Forward we passed on narrow brigs of tree, or waters great that hideously did roar. There lay below that fearful was to see most ugly beasts that gaped to devour. My head grew light and troubled wondrous sore. My heart did fear, my feet began to slide. But when I cried, he heard me evermore and held me up. O oh, blessed be my guide. Escaping these dangers and exhausted through fatigue, she at length thought of sitting down to rest, but he told her that she must proceed on her journey, and accordingly, though weak, she rose up at his command. 
For her encouragement, he pointed to that delightful place after which she aspired, apparently at hand. And looking up, she beheld the celestial mansion glistening like burnished gold and the brightest silver, with its stately towers rising full in her view. As she gazed, the splendor of the sight dazzled her eyes, and in an ecstasy of joy she besought her guide to conduct her there at once and by a direct course. But he told her that though it was at no great distance, yet the way to it was extremely difficult, and encouraging her not to faint, bade her cleave fast to him. Having described the difficulties and dangers she subsequently met with in the course of her journey, she concludes the poem with an explanation of the spiritual meaning of the dream. The following is one of the concluding stanzas. Rejoice in God, let not your courage fail, ye chosen saints that are afflicted here. Though Satan rage, he never shall prevail. Fight to the end and stoutly persevere. Your God is true, your blood is to him dear. Fear not the way, since Christ is your convoy. When clouds are past, the weather will grow clear. Ye sow in tears, but ye shall reap in joy. To the godly dream there is added a short poem entitled A Comfortable Song to the tune of Shall I Let Her Go? which we hear subjoined. Away, vain world, bewitcher of my heart! My sorrow shows my sins make me to smart. Yet will I not despair, but to my God repair. He has mercy, I, therefore will I pray. He has mercy, I, and loves me, though by his troubling hand he proves me. Away, away, too long hast thou me snared. I will not tine more time. I am prepared thy subtle slight to flee. Thou hast deceived me. Though they sweetly smile, smoothly they, de- they beguile. Though they sweetly smile, suspect them. The simple sort, they sile, reject them. Footnote. To sile is Scottish for to cover or to blindfold. End footnote. Once more away, shows loath the world to leave. Bids oft away with her that holds me slave. Loath I am to forego that sweet alluring foe. Since thy ways are vain, shall I them repain? Since thy ways are vain, I quit thee. Thy pleasure shall no more delight me. A thousand times away, ah, stay no more. Sweet Christ, me save, lest subtle sin devour. Without thy helping hand I have no strength to stand. Lest I turn aside, let thy grace me guide. Lest I turn aside, draw near me. And when I call for help, Lord, hear me. What shall I do? Are all my pleasures past? Shall worldly lusts now take their leave at last? Yea, Christ, these earthly toys shall turn in heavenly joys. Let the world be gone. I will love Christ alone. Let the world be gone. I care not. Christ is my love alone. I fear not. Lady Jane Campbell, Viscountess of Kenmure Lady Jane Campbell, Viscountess of Kenmure, was one of the most eminent of the religious ladies who lived during the 17th century, and her name is well known to the religious people of Scotland. No female name of that period has indeed been more familiar to them 
than hers for nearly two centuries. Nor is this owing to her having left behind her any autobiography or diary containing a record of the Christian graces which adorned her character, or of the remarkable events of the times in which she lived. For nothing of this kind is known to have ever existed. It is the letters of the celebrated Mr. Samuel Rutherford, whose wonderful effusions of sanctified genius, which have immortalized her memory and made her name familiar to the pious peasantry of our land. Who is there that has read the beautiful letters addressed to her by that eminent man who has not felt the attractions of her character? Although it is only indirectly that we can deduce from them the elements which rendered it so attractive. Footnote Rutherford was singularly free from the vice of flattery, and this greatly enhances the value of the illustrations of character which may be derived from his letters. I had rather commend grace than gracious persons, says he, to Lady Kenmure in his dedication of his trial and triumph of faith to her, and on this principle he proceeded in writing his letters. End footnote. Lady Jane Campbell was the third daughter of Archibald, seventh Earl of Argyll, by his first wife, Anne, fifth daughter of William, sixth Earl of Morton of the House of Loch Leven. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 94. In Volume 2, page 274, her mother is called Agnes. End footnote. The precise date of her birth is uncertain, but her parents were married before October 1594. Descended on both the father's and the mother's side from ancient and noble families of great distinction, she was particularly honored in her paternal ancestors, who were renowned for the zeal with which they maintained the cause of the Reformation. Her great-grandfather, Archibald, fourth Earl of Argyll, who in extreme old age espoused among the first of his rank Protestant principles, was one of the lords of the congregation who subscribed the band, dated Edinburgh, December 3, 1557, the first covenant or engagement of the Scottish reformers for their mutual defense. Footnote Knox's History of the Reformation in Scotland, Wadrill Society Edition, Volume 1, pages 273 and 274. End footnote And on his deathbed, Footnote, he died toward the close of the year 1558. End footnote. He left it as his dying charge to his son Archibald, Lord Lorne, afterward 5th Earl of Argyle, that he should study to set forward the public and true preaching of the Evangel of Jesus Christ and to suppress all superstition and idolatry to the uttermost of his power. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.